So I don't know if anyone can relate to this for anyone who has raised teenagers, or maybe if you were a teenager at some point, you might be able to relate to this. But when I was a teenager, I did stupid things occasionally, okay, frequently. Um, <laughs> but I, a lot of it involved my friends. It seemed like when me and a group of guys get together, just stupid things happen. Like, for example, um, like Bob said, I, I grew up over in Antioch. We were members of Lakeshore Christian Church. We were out at the, the youth group out there, and I had great friends in the youth group. And every day after church, we would hang out in the parking lot, as teenagers do, because they have nowhere else to go, apparently. But we would hang out in the parking lot, and, and our, our weekly tradition was to go to Taco Bell. Everyone in the youth group went to Taco Bell afterwards. And before we left, we would just kind of hang out there and, you know, people would honk at us as they tried to leave the parking lot and things like that, get around us. Um, but as we were hanging out there one day, I was with a group of my friends, particularly I'm talking to my friend Joseph, and he's standing directly in front of me talking to me. And I want to I set the, uh, the actual stage here for what this looked like. So I'm standing here, my friend Joseph is talking directly to me, and he had his car like right over there, and he had left his keys in the car. Yeah, right? And so our friend Jonathan thought it would be funny to get in his car and to take it and to drive it off to Taco Bell, and it would be funny because he'd be like, where's my car? You know, it's, I don't know, teenager things. I don't know. Well, I thought, you know what? Let me get to this point. So Jonathan gets in the car, and, and he slowly drives up, but he has to go past us to get out of the parking lot, right? And so there's a lot of teenagers sitting around, so he's driving really slowly, and it's this little red Ford Tempo, you know, we used to call it the tomato. Um, and this little tomato is just slowly sneaking behind us. And I realized Joseph hadn't noticed that his car was coming and it was going to pass right behind us. And I thought it would be funny. I don't know why, but I thought it would be funny if like, while we were talking, if I just pushed Joseph and he like, but not in front of the car, stop gasping. I'm not a monster. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, as the car's passed, and he would bump into it, and he'd go, oh, and he would turn around, and it would be his car, and, oh, it would be so funny. That's what a teenager thinks, apparently. So I did that. So I'm getting excited. I'm talking to Joseph. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's talking, you know, the car slowly starts, and I push him. But because I was so excited, I pushed him a little bit too soon. And so when he, when he stepped back, when he went back, he stepped back, right? And he, he stepped his foot back right in front of the wheel. Now, this happened instantaneously. Now, I feel like... I should tell you, before I continue this story, in the end, he was okay. All right? So it's, it's okay to laugh at this. He was fine. <laughs> because at the time, we had no idea. We were terrified because all of this happened in an instant. That I pushed him back. He steps back. Boom! He just smacks to the ground. I mean, he's down because the, the wheels start to roll over his foot. Our friend Jonathan, who's in the car, stops the car right on top of his foot. Joseph is screaming, ah, ah, ah. And to be fair, it wasn't that big of a car. I mean, he was kind of exaggerating. I'm like, come on, man. Right? So he's like, ah! He's, John stops the car, gets out of the car, and looks at us and like, what's going on? Because you imagine from his point of view, he's driving the car, and all of a sudden, he runs over his friend Joseph. Right? He gets out of the car, and he looks at us. All of everyone is looking at us right now, because Joseph's screaming. Jonathan's getting out of the car. Everyone's looking. We all look up at Jonathan. We're like, get in the car! Move the car! He stops right on Joseph's foot, right? So he puts it in reverse. And you know how in like, some older cars, like it takes a second for the transmission to catch before, you know what I mean? And it's like in neutral for like a second. 
before it catches. So he throws it in reverse. The car rolls forward off of Joseph's foot, catches in reverse. Joseph's, ha, ah, we're all like, ha. Ah. The car catches in reverse, rolls back up on top of Joseph's foot, stops, and Jonathan gets out of the car again. What's going on? We're like, yeah, move the car. Move. Joseph starts screaming again, move the car. So he gets back in. He, he puts it in drive this time. It rolls forward. And he, he, he gets off of him. By this point, half of Lakeshore Christian Church is running out to see their stupid youth group in the parking lot. <laughs> what is going on? I am like sweating. I'm like, I've just, I, he's going to be crippled the rest of his life. He's going to be in a wheelchair because of me. Like, and so uh, luckily there was a, a guy who was a doctor and he came out and he looked at him, he checked him out. And he, I mean, he looked at him, he was fine. He just had a little bit of a bruise, not even a sprain or anything. And the craziest thing about this story which I think that all, all that is funny. But the craziest thing about it is Joseph gets up and he wiggles his foot and he looks at me and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. He goes, it's okay, dude. And he gives me a hug and we go on to Taco Bell like it was nothing. Like we just continued on to Taco Bell. Like, like that dude just forgave me like that. Like that was my biggest takeaway from that experience. Like I remember thinking, I was like, Man, here I am an idiot. Like, here I'm, I pushed my friend in front of a car, right? Like, any normal person would be like, what are you, you like, why am I friends with you? But, but this guy was such a good guy. This friendship that I had with him was, was so unique. Was, that bond that we had was so good that he was able to just forgive me like that. And our friendship was able to survive that. And it was times like that. There were lots of instances, not just where I did stupid things, but where good things happened. But there were lots of things during that time in my life that really brought to my attention, that I believe God was bringing to my attention that, you know what? These people that I have in my life, this is something special. This bond that I have with these guys in fact, they would get to be where I wouldn't call them my friends. I would call them my brothers. And I look back and I think these people that have been in my life, these brothers that have been in my life for decades, even though life has changed and we've gotten married and we've had kids and we've moved to all different states and we're coming around in careers and all this stuff, despite all that, this special, powerful bond that I have in my life is incredible. And there have been times where I've looked back at my life past and I realize, I know with certainty that if I didn't have these men in my life, my life would not be what it is now. That I can point to these guys and say, my life is better because they're in it. I can point to these guys and say, I'm a better man because these men are in my life. And I, I, just, I just think what a profound thing that is. I can't imagine where my path would be without the encouragement that I've received from them. I can't imagine where my path would be without the accountability for how to have people to be able to speak sometimes difficult truths into my life. People who know me, and I know that they know me, and people who care about me, and I know that they care about me, and people who want me to win, they're for me, and I know that they're for me. And so because of that, they're able to speak things into my life and speak encouragement and speak truth and to speak love into my life. And I can't imagine what my path would be without that. And we're starting this new series today that we're going to be going over this month called Real Human Connection, where we're looking at this idea of relationships and community. And we're talking about, um, oh, let me look at my notes. What are we talking about? We're talking about how exactly do we do that? What exactly does that look like in our lives when we're doing that? And we're going to be talking about why is it, why this is not only so enriching to our life, but why is it essential to a fulfilling life? 
And it's kind of discouraging because, you know, when I'm doing research on this and, 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 and every time I preach a sermon, I do research. And I, and I was doing some research on this topic. And it's really kind of discouraging when you look out there and you see that there's been a lot of studies done in the scientific community uh, over the past 30 or so years. A, a, a lot have come up about studying this topic of friendship and relationship and community. And it's really discouraging because what we've seen is a really negative trend happening over the past 30 years in the United States. Um, studies have shown this, um, just a few things that I pulled out of a lot of different articles that I read. One, the rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Only 50, well, this one study showed that only 53% of Americans have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. Only 50%. There was one uh, survey that was done where they went around, they asked people, like, you know, how would you classify? Do you have friends? Do you have good friends? Do you have close confidants? And they say, how many do you have? And it was, you know, and the numbers were lower today than they were 30 years ago, particularly among that generation called millennials. The most common answer to the question, how many close confidants do you have? The most common answer for millennials? Zero. None. And we see this decline in relationship. We even saw this on, on, uh, on one of the local news channels. We're talking about Nashville is one of the loneliest cities in America. This, this huge national survey was done over several years, and they, they saw that Nashville is one of the loneliest cities in America. It is the loneliest city in the South. I know. I mean, it, it just blows my mind. It is, it's just Not only is it discouraging, but it's kind of scary, man, particularly among men. I mean, it's really bad among men. Because it almost seems like, like, like the difference between men and women, whether it's biological or social or whatever it is, but, but women tend to be better equipped at this than men. Man, men are just suffering at this. We have no friends. We have no close confidence. In fact, the studies have shown that divorce is worse for men than it is women. I guess you would think, I don't know, you would think that it would be harder on women because, you know, the people would be upset. Men are supposed to be stoic and nothing bothers me. No, no, no. It's way worse for men because they discovered that men have no social network to fall back on. The only people that men talk to usually are their wives. And if they're not talking to their wives, they're not talking to anybody. And I think we're feeling this too, right? Let me, let me ask the men in here. Just, just, you know, you can nod along with me. If you are out of town, say you're, if you're married, maybe you're not married, but if you're dating someone, or, but for those of you who are married particularly, if you are out of town and your wife calls you at 3 o'clock in the morning with an emergency, do you have anyone you could call to go check on her. And I don't mean your mom. Like, if you're thinking here, it's like, well, I would call my mom. You know, she lives across the street. That doesn't count. You know, your mom doesn't count. That's not what we're talking about today. You know, I, I think about this. I think about this when, you know, there were times where Sarah and I lived in Cincinnati. It was times where we lived in Lexington. And it's thoughts like this, you know, where I would travel or I would go somewhere with, with, with my job or something. And, and I think, like, man, if something happened, who, who would I call? You know, I mean, I have a lot of acquaintances. But someone I could wake up in the middle of the night and say, my, there's something going on. I need you to go to my house and be there with my wife. That's kind of discouraging when we think about it. And this is with the era of social media. This is during the era of the internet, right? Like, like relationships have declined over the past 30 years as technology has gotten better, as communication has gotten better. We have cell phones now. We are more connected now than we've ever been. And we're also lonelier than we've ever been. And I feel like, you know, I'm 34, so I'm one of the older millennials 
So I feel like as a millennial, it's my job to defend the internet and social media. And certainly, like, there are a lot of good things about social media. When, you know, I grew up here in Nashville, and I spent, um, I don't know, about 10 years away. And during that time when I was away, living in other parts of the country, social media was great to stay in touch with my family, to stay in touch with my friends. Those guys that I told you about who lived, social media was great over those long distances. But, man, it just does not replace. It supplements but it does not replace real human connection. We were promised that by social media. We were promised that by cell phones. We were promised that by the internet, that this is going to make us more connected than ever. We realize that oftentimes it doesn't expose us to people who are different than us. We just create our own echo chambers and reinforce and polarize more than we ever were. And not only that, but now we are replacing real human connection with digital connection. It's a good supplement, but it is a really bad replacement. Real human connection is slowly disappearing in our society. And when we don't have that, when we don't have this thing, when we're not part of community, when we don't have that connection, I mean, there's all kinds of negative things that happen into our life. Like we know, we know that like there's the emotional things, right? Like if I'm lonely, if I'm not connected in in close relationship with people, if I don't have a, a social network of people, I know that it's heartbreaking, right? I know that emotionally it's difficult. I know intellectually it can be difficult. There are studies that show that it impairs our cognitive functions. But not only that, this is what's really crazy is like studies, like recent research has shown that it has physical consequences to our bodies. Physical consequences. This is, this is what's crazy. I discovered this. I was blown away by this. Loneliness reduces our average longevity. In other words, how long we live, it reduces it more than twice as much as heavy drinking. I mean, this is saying like it's healthier to be a heavy drinker than to be persistently lonely. That's crazy. And it's not good to be a heavy drinker, by the way. I don't want anyone to take the wrong message from that. But loneliness reduces our average longevity more than three times as much as obesity. Loneliness is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. On our stress levels, on our our heart, on our, um, what do you call it? The cholesterol, all that stuff. Yeah, the whole thing. This was interesting. There's a study done in Australia of women who had breast cancer. Um, and they, the study, in the study, they worked out the, the connections, the, the, the social connections that the women had and kind of like how connected they were and how surrounded they, they were by other people. They found out that the women who had a, a deep uh, social connections were 50% more likely to survive breast cancer. 50%. If there is something so powerful that it's going to increase my chances of surviving cancer by 50%, this is what the scientific community is telling us. They're discovering that loneliness increases stress. It increases depression. It increases suicide. It increases drug addiction. It decreases addiction of all kinds, not just drug addiction, but all media addiction. All kinds of things that we're replacing. It's interesting. There's a study done, particularly on drug addiction. And I love this because this is beautiful. The scientific community out there is is trying to figure out drug addiction and how to fix it and cure it. And they find out something completely surprising, something totally unexpected that they weren't uh, looking for. Uh, I brought a video. Let's take a look at this video. It talks about it. The powerful effects of real human connection and the lack thereof. Man, we need healthy bonds. 
We need community. We need each other. When we don't have that, it diminishes our lives and it weakens us. It makes us susceptible to negative things. And often we can try to find that fulfillment in other things because we want that fulfillment, right? And if we don't get it from people, if we don't get it from community, from real human connection, we can go to other things to find that community or to find that fulfillment. We often can go to distraction, to just distract us from this this ache that we have in our soul. We can go to indulgence, just anything to make me feel good, whether it's food or drugs or sex or porn or whatever that is, which we're seeing happen in our society. We're seeing indulgence like never before because we're lacking real human connection like never before. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's not that. Maybe it's entertainment. Man, how much time do we spend on the computer? How much time do I spend in front of Netflix? That's my favorite thing to do. But am I just distracting myself with entertainment? Or maybe it's good things, man. Maybe it's achievement. We're running to achievement to fulfill us. We're, we're not getting that through real human connection. We're not a part of a community. We're not thriving the way that our souls were intended to be. And so we're going after achievement, hoping that that will fulfill us. And what's interesting is, like, achievement is great. And there's something super just, just fantastic about working hard and, and effort and then seeing the fruit of our labor. Man, that is a good thing. But it will never never fulfill us the way that real human connection will. I mean, you see this from everyone who's, who's ever seen achievement, everyone who's ever become successful and they've accomplished what they set out to accomplish, they've done what they set out to, to do. You see, it's so common for them to say, hey man, this is not what life's all about. There's this famous quote from Jim Carrey. I love this. Put this up on the screen. It's just beautiful. He says, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. We are not made to live life alone. We're just not made to, we are relational beings. We're made to be in community. We see this from the very beginning in scripture. From the very beginning, you read Genesis chapter one and two. You see as God is creating the universe, Right? The creator of the universe is making things. He is just this beautiful, like an artist making his art. And you see how he's accomplishing this. You see from the very beginning, he makes something, he says, this is good. He makes something, he says, this is good. He keeps doing that. Everything is good. Everything is good. The very first time he says, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not good. Everything was good up until that point. And he, something stops him and says, this is not good. It's when he sees Adam alone and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he makes a companion. From the very beginning, we see this. All up into the time of Jesus, where this, the religious scholars were trying to stump him and were trying to get him. All, all these philosophical questions. They said, Jesus, what is, what is the most important commandment? What is the most important thing in Scripture? And Jesus says this in Matthew uh, 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Did you, you catch that last sentence? All the law and the prophets hang on these two. The entire scripture can be summarized in these two things. Jesus is looking these people in the face and he's telling them, the most important thing that I could tell you, the most important thing in scripture, the most important thing you could understand. This is Jesus here saying this, right? When Jesus says something, like if, if this is the savior, this is Lord and savior, okay? If Lord and savior could come up here on stage, imagine all of the things we could learn from him. But then when he gets 
on stage and says, yes, all of those things are good. But the most important thing is to love God and to love others. He could have phrased that any way he wanted, but he didn't use legal terminology when he was talking about that. No, it's not about laws and rules and things like, you know, you need to follow these laws and you do these rules and you check out this list. That's not the way he framed it. He could have framed it in military terms. He's like, we are, we are, we're marching. You know, he could have talked about it in philosophical terms and talked about the philosophy behind it. No, no, no. He used relational language. The most important thing in life is our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Of all the good things in the world, of all the good things we can do, of all the good things we do do, none of those will last. If you've read King Solomon, when he wrote in his journal, which we called the book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote that it doesn't matter what you accomplish, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you have, it doesn't matter all of these experiences, all these other things, none of that lasts and none of that ultimately fulfills. The only things that are eternal are our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. I mean, Jesus knew that that friendship and meaningful community enriches our lives. The reality is life is better when we live it together. It just is. And here's what's crazy. When the ancient word of God is telling us one thing, and then when modern science is telling us the same thing, you can't just ignore that right? You get, oh yeah, I'm fine on my own. I'm a strong, independent man. Dude, shut up. You're human, okay? You're human just like all the rest of us. We try to build these shells of independence around us, but no, you're human. And as long as you have human DNA, this applies to all of us. We need real human connection. Life is better when we live together. And it's what's beautiful is like these, these people, these men uh, that followed Jesus and they learned at his feet and they, they heard all of his teachings and they sat around the campfires and they had breakfast with him and they, they heard every word that he said and then they, they traveled with him and they saw him live this out. It's beautiful how they wrote about their experiences and they wrote about these things that Jesus was talking about. The apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends wrote, wrote this um, uh, towards the beginning of his life in John chapter one. He said, yet to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Later at the end of his life, John reinforces, he said, see what great love the father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You see, he's telling us when Jesus would talk about uh, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. See, when Jesus talked about it, those two things were linked that when we believe in Jesus as our Savior, when we make Jesus the king of our lives, we are adopted into his family. Here's what Peter said. If you've read the, the four Gospels, if you've read the story of Jesus, you're probably familiar with Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest friends. You see him pop up, and he's a very passionate guy. He gets a lot of things right. He gets a lot of things wrong. But here's what he said at the end of his life when he was writing a letter to the Christians. He says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. The apostle Paul, who was probably one of the greatest uh, evangelists or greatest church planters, uh, of one of the most influential people in all of Christianity, he says this, 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We're different. We look different. We live different. We think different. We come from different places, but just as a body has different parts, we come together in Christ and form one body. Later, Paul summarized the kind of the big picture of Jesus when he wrote to the Christians uh, in a city called Galatia. He, he wrote this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that he might receive, or that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That when we make Jesus our king, when we trust in him as our savior, we are adopted into God's family. This is God's family. This isn't Adam's family. This isn't Aspen Grove's family. This isn't the Baptist family, the Presbyterian family. This is God's family. And this is an invitation from God that when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you belong to something bigger than yourself. You are now brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an early Christian named Luke, and, and Luke was a, a student of the Apostle Paul. And Luke became a, a Christian, and he began to experience this. And the way that Luke's mind was, it's just, he's a really cool uh, uh, person in the New Testament, is he went around and he interviewed other people. He's like, wow, this has changed my life, and I want to interview the other people who lived with Jesus and other people in different parts of the world who are also experiencing this. He's kind of like a, like a um, documentarian. I guess if he were modern day today, he'd have a documentary on Netflix probably. But he wrote the biography of Jesus, and then he wrote a biography of the early church, uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, and in the book of Acts, this is what he describes. This is how he says, this is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. It's beautiful. He paints this picture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were celebrating together. They were living life together. They were sharing with each other. They were generous with each other. They were selfless with each other. This is, this is in community. They lived this out. We forgot this today, but they knew it. Those people who knew Jesus, every time Jesus taught, it was in, when he's talking about uh, spiritual growth, when he's talking about growing closer to God, he always, it was always within the context of community. It was never a thing you do by yourself. It was never a thing you do alone. It was never a thing you do isolated because it doesn't work that way. No, no, no. It's you are adopted into God's family and we do this together in community. We are growing and thriving together. Think about this. In, in the, for the first 300 years of Christianity, they didn't have the Bible. Not only that, but for a lot longer than 300 years, these people were illiterate. So even later on when they did get the Bible, they couldn't read it. They couldn't print. The printing press wasn't invented until what, like the 1500s? 
It's about 1,500 years where the people didn't have a Bible. They didn't have access to the Bible. They didn't have, that's, that's our go-to, right? If I can get my hands on the Bible and read the scripture. And the Bible is the word of God that's powerful. It is useful for teaching and correcting and training and righteousness, right? The Bible is powerful things. But why did they get this so right? Why were they so powerful? Why was this community, they had such favor for all the people and the Lord added to their number daily and they changed the world and they didn't have access to scripture like we did. Why is that? Because they were growing and thriving in community. We need this. We know we need this. We know we need real human connection. We know that it enriches our lives. And we're invited to have this. Each of us today has this invitation that we're invited to be a part. This is what we're made for. And Jesus and the, and the apostles, they gave us guidance on how to do this well and how to do this the best way. And we're going to talk about that n- this next week because it's not just like aimlessly. We're not just getting together just for whatever. No, you want to do this the right way. You want to do this the best way. And they talk about this and we're going to talk about that next week. But at the very least, we know that it doesn't just happen. This community didn't just happen accidentally. Like they weren't just passive in this, right? And they just let it happen to them. No, no, it doesn't happen accidentally, right? This is what the science is telling us too. The science is telling us we're distracted with other things and we're prioritizing other things. And when we get involved with other things, the thing that suffers is relationships and community because those things don't just happen. We got to do that on purpose. We can't do that accidentally. We have to do that intentionally. We've got to prioritize. If we want to do this, we have to intentionally pursue this. Here's what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Christians in the city Ephesus, his city in, in Asia Minor. And he wrote to them, he says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, he's in prison and he's writing this letter to them. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Do everything you can to pursue community. Because it doesn't just happen. It's amazing when you read the New Testament, you read all these letters and and scriptures, and you see the Christians doing it together. They had their struggles. They had their frustrations. They had their friction. You know, they had the things that, but, but time and time again, the, the scripture is telling us, do this. We need it. You're invited to be a part of it. Pursue it because it's worth it. It is so worth it because we have to be proactive. We have to step out there. We'll never find the time for this. We'll never find the time. It's never going to be convenient. It's just not, like, right? Like, sometimes that's what we're thinking. It's like, well, you know, I, I, I'll get more connected in my church when I have more time. You're never going to have more time. It's not going to, life, doesn't, that doesn't happen that way. Like, oh, I used to be busy when I was young, but the older I get, the more free time I have. Usually, life doesn't happen that way. We'll never uh, find the time. We have to make the time. This is these beautiful two studies um, in the University of Oxford and the University of, of Kansas. They did these studies on relationships to try to understand these, these interconnections and how they got to be, how they got closer to each other. And they had this theory that there were layers of friendships, Okay, and they said you had acquaintances, casual friends, friends, and good friends. 
And in, in these studies, they, they discovered that we can have about 80 acquaintances and casual friends. We have, generally speaking, about 50 friends. We generally have about 15 good friends, and we're closest to five people. So how, how, how did they get to be that way? How did they get to be closer? How did they go from acquaintances to good friends to the closest people? They discovered this. And it was pretty shocking that when I was reading the article. They were like, wow, they were really surprised that it's, it's intentional time together. It's time. It's spending time together. They found that it takes about 50 hours to move from acquaintance to casual friends. It takes about 90 hours to go from casual friend to friend, and it takes more than 200 hours to qualify as a best friend. It's just time spent together. And we can't be efficient at relationships, right? It's like, well, if I join a better group or if I have this better study, it's time together. We can't be efficient at that. You think about that with your kids, right? It's like, I'm going to spend this, a good solid five minutes with them, and we got that strong bond, and then I'm going to go and do something else. No, you don't. If you want a strong bond with your kid, you spend time with them. It's just time together. I remember when, back the, the last time Sarah and I lived in Nashville, we both worked downtown, and we commuted uh, from Antioch downtown to commute together in the same car down and commute on the way out. And just that time together every single morning, I think, was such a beneficial thing for us. And I realized, you know, as we get older, like, we don't spend as much time together. And you can tell. You can tell when that time together, it changes that relationship. You can tell. But we can't be, we, we can't be efficient at this. We have to invest. We have to prioritize. Say, hey, man, I'm going to invest in these relationships. I'm going to invest that time. I'm just going to put the time in. I had this pastor once tell me, when it was, an, it was a guy who was older than me, far wiser than I was, and he had such great experience, and I, and I would learn from him, and he would, and he would say, um, I would ask him all these ministry questions, and, uh, and I was, well, you're going to go to this thing. What are you going to say? You're going to go to these people. What are you going to do? You know, he would respond to crises, people in the hospital, all kinds of things, and he would always say, he's like, you know what? Ministry is relationships, and 50% of relationships is just showing up. You just show up. You're just there. You're present. You put in the time. That means something. And I want to encourage all of us here to intentionally pursue community, to prioritize it, to make the choice to invest the time in each other. The times that we gather here, that what, what did you just do right before I came up on stage? And you're, you're talking and shaking hands, and I, I was looking around with Sarah, and I'm like, look at this. You know, like these times where just get together, you talk in the parking lot after church, you're a part of a group where you go to someone's house and you eat dinner with them, or you have two friends that you get together and you say, how are you doing? How's life going? And we share a meal together. Man, I want to encourage all of us in here to pursue that because it's worth it. It's not just worth it. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's intellectual. It's physical. It's our whole self. I want to encourage us to do that. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like in the coming weeks. But right now, we're going to go to a time in prayer. Because at the center of our community is Jesus. Because we talked about this, in Christ, we are one. In Christ, we bring together. And the glue that bonds us together is Jesus. And so we're going to have a time where we, we uh, pass around communion. And this is a time to stop and reflect on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And what that means in our lives. Um, so we'll pray, and then, is that, is that correct? Am I, am I wrong in saying, okay, yeah, Bob shook his head. So, all right, we'll pray, and then we'll do that. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much 
for loving us. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being someone who loves us and cares for us and, and, and provides for us and takes care of us. Lord, thank you for your immense grace and mercy that you forgive our imperfections and that you show your beauty in our ugliness. God, thank you for inviting us to be a part of your family. Help us to, to have that urgency. Help us to have that, that, that drive uh, to want to be brothers and sisters in Christ with each other. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us today. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to lift one another, in, uh, one another up. Help us to pray for each other. Help us to speak truth into each other's lives. Help us to speak hard truths into each other's lives. Lord, help us to be better together than we are apart. And let it all be for your glory. Lord, bring our attention and focus back to Jesus. Lord, help us to, to know that, that he is the center of our community. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.